We are in Proverbs 17. So if you'd like to turn there, just one chapter tonight. 28 Proverbs that we'll look at. Possibly 29, depending on how you look at them. And while you're turning there, I'm going to begin just by reading out of the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Jesus is speaking. And I'm going to start with this because I think there's a way to frame this chapter. There was something that really stood out to me as I studied. And we're going to look at it from this perspective. But Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave or servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Now as you come to expect, especially in the book of Proverbs, it's filled with individual Proverbs. It's not so much thematic by chapter or by section as much as just these individual Proverbs the Lord lays out before us so that we stop and consider each one individually. But I want to approach chapter 7 in a certain context tonight. And I think you'll see it as we go. But I want to approach these particular Proverbs grouped here together as wisdom for servants of the household of God. Wisdom for servants of the household of God. Verse 1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. I like that. You could say better is a... a quiet bowl of grape nuts without milk than a holiday feast with dysfunctional feuding. You could put it that way. But this proverb is not talking about family foods and feuds. This proverb is talking about religious attitudes in the house of God. And I know this specifically, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But it's a good word for the church. It was a good word for the people of Israel, but for us this evening, better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Let me explain. King Ahab, you may know, was one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. Bad, bad dude. His wife was Jezebel, so that about sums things up. Bad situation, bad couple, evil, wicked. And Ahab's house would have been a place filled with loud, boisterous, religious feasting. Ahab's house would have been a house full of feasting with strife. The spread in Ahab's house was impressive. You see, religiously speaking, he had the two golden calves, one up in Dan and the other one down at Bethel. He had an altar built by himself to the god Baal in Samaria. He had numerous Asherah poles, and he brought in idolatry the likes of even Jeroboam would have been impressed. Ahab's house was served up lots of religion. Lots of feasting religiously, very little faith. And so his house was somewhat of a picture of this, this cacophony, if you will, of empty calories. Spiritually speaking, no substance, no faith. So God sent the prophet Elijah to Ahab's house to tell him, that's it, the rain will stop immediately. And then the Lord told Elijah, as soon as you deliver this message, I want you to get out of there. You need to get out of there and and do it quickly. 
hide yourself. So 1 Kings 17 verse 5 tells us, He went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Kerit, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And the story goes on, and she did provide for him. Of course, the Lord provided for her in amazing ways. And Elijah was fed. But note the difference between Ahab's house and where Elijah was sent. Ahab's house, a place of noise and feasting and religiosity and all the gods you could possibly eat. And Ahab is sent off to the brook Kerit, which was in the calm region of the Jordan River Valley. And there, ravens brought him breakfast and dinner. Not much, probably something akin to beef jerky and Cheetos, you know. And then he was told to go further, Zarephath, further away to the north. In fact, Zarephath was completely out of the region of Israel altogether, away from the false religion and pretentious piety that was going on in Israel. Very different than the religious activity of Ahab's house. Plenty of feasting and strife. God said, Elijah, I want you to go to a place where the food's going to be simple, dry morsels, but where there's quiet and where there's peace. And the proverb tells us better that than all the noise of Ahab's house. Now, how do we know this proverb is about religious attitudes? Where do you get that idea? Well, it's interesting the word feasting there is zabach in Hebrew, and zabach literally means sacrifice. Sacrifice. In fact, this particular word was most often associated with a certain sacrifice, and that is the peace offering of Israel. You Bible students may recall the peace offering, what that was. That was the offering, it was voluntary, and the Lord told the people, bring the peace offering and come, and you'll offer part of it on the altar to me in fire, and part of it you keep, but you need to eat it right there. You can't take it home. You can't get a doggy bag. you got to sit down and, and eat it with them. What was the point? Fellowship. In fact, it was called the fellowship offering. The thank offering. This was the offering where God said to the Jewish people, Come and feast with me. Let's have barbecue together. Let's hang out together. Let's be together in fellowship and peace. But in Israel, a problem began to happen. Religion got in the way. The peace offering undermined the peace that it was all about. Better a dry morsel with quietness like the early days of the church. In Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. If anyone were to ask me, Rick, what is the prescription for a healthy church? I would say that's it right there. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, Breaking up bread, prayer. If you do that, if you maintain that sense of simplicity and quietness, oh, to some it might seem like a dry morsel. You know? Not a lot going on. Where are the programs? Where's the hype? Where's the pop and the sizzle? I want a filet mignon. And the Lord's saying, yeah, but the grape nuts might better suit you. And the reality is, and you know this, in the simplicity of just doing things God's way, you get fed. You get filled up. 
that's the menu for a substantive peace offering. Keep it simple, quiet, relational, free of strife, filled with love. This has been my prayer and will continue to be my prayer for the Bridge Fellowship. We just stay about the business of the Lord. Listen to the Apostles' teaching. Break bread together and have fellowship and pray. Oh, it might seem, might seem like a dry morsel to some, but better that with quietness with it. The peace of the Lord. I think the original intention of the peace offering. Verse 2. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. Continuing in the house of the Lord. Wise servants in the house of God, wise servants will learn that wise actions have wonderful results. If we choose to move wisely, and by the way, you're doing that right now. It was a wise choice to be here tonight. Always a wise choice to be in the Word, to be in worship together. But the wise servant has been promised a share of the inheritance. The wise servant, even authority over a shameful son. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's the obvious you know, ramifications that uh, Solomon's indicating here. There were times where the, the servant was elevated over the son because the son went off the deep end. And sure, that makes sense. But in the house of the Lord, I think there's a significant implication here. Jesus said in Matthew 21.42, talking to the chief priests and elders of the Jewish people. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's serious business. The sons were shaming the father. The sons were acting shamefully, and so the son of the house said, you're going to lose out. And what was originally intended for you is now going to be taken from you and given to another people, producing the fruit of it, namely, given to the servants in the house. Now Jesus is directly speaking to the chief priests and elders who were challenging His authority as the Son of God. They were blind to the truth, that was right there before their very eyes, the sons of the house were acting shamefully. And Jesus says, that's it. You're about to lose your inheritance. You're losing your authority. Now, listen closely. I am not speaking replacement theology. That's not what this is about. However, God had a plan all along that would involve the Jewish people, His own, His chosen people, losing their inheritance, losing their position and their authority for a season, Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. And in their losing, people would come about and produce the fruit of what God wanted to do, which was to get the gospel out to the entire world. But God's plan is absolutely marvelous. Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, Paul writing, they, the Jewish people, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? There is a fulfillment of the promises, of the inheritance for the Jewish people. 
But the marvelous thing is because of this whole plan that God set in place from early on, we get to share in the inheritance. We were just servants in the house. And now we are adopted as sons, as daughters of the king. We are now drawn in. We now share in the inheritance and the authority given to us. The sons will have their fulfillment as well, but not before the fires of persecution. Verse 3, the refining pot is for silver in the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. And we talked about that on Sunday, that refinement process that the Lord allows. You know, I would say the Lord takes us into the furnace of refinement. I think it's almost wimpy the way we say, well, the Lord allows bad things to happen because He wouldn't cause bad things to happen. It almost sounds like things get out of His control and then He comes in and tries to get it fixed up right. Rick, are you saying that the Lord causes bad stuff in my life and yours? I'm saying I believe the Lord walks me into the furnace from time to time, yes. For purification, for refinement, knowing how much pressure, how much heat I can take, but walks me into those seasons. And this takes a bit, I believe, of spiritual maturity for us to grasp this. It's not about blaming God. Oh, so if I'm in the furnace, it's His fault. No, 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 no. He's there with you. And Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I said this on Sunday, if you are in the furnace, if God has taken you into that place of struggle and hardship and sorrow, He must love you an awful lot talk more about that in a minute. Verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Notice that. It's a little different than perhaps what we've heard in other Proverbs. It's not an evildoer speaks with wicked lips or a liar speaks with a destructive tongue. He listens. She pays attention. The fellow servants of the household of God. You may not gossip, but are you listening to it? Oh, I, I wouldn't speak it out. Would you hear it? Mm. Would you give it credence? Would you give it opportunity? Solomon here, and it's, it's wonderful. Challenging, but wonderful. He equates the gossiper with the listener. I would never gossip, but if you're listening, you are a gossip. Same thing. Whether you're speaking it or you're hearing it, it is the same thing. Giving ear to gossip, giving ear to hearsay and assumption is no different because it continues the gossip. It allows it to keep going on. If you, if I refuse to listen to it, it stops. There's nowhere for it to go. Did you hear about so-and-so? I don't, I don't need to. I'll tell you what, if you're going to gossip about anybody, gossip good. Let's be known as a church that gossips good. We'll say nothing but good things about people behind their back all the time. And listen to that. But when it comes to negativity, if we won't listen, gossip has nowhere to go. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, which we're going to talk about. Did you hear about that? Two days with Timothy, Friday and Saturday coming up. 
In his second letter to Timothy, Paul made this stunning statement. He said the last days will be marked by malicious gossip. And they are. These days are marked by malicious gossip. Sadly, our society is captivated by the latest slop. The latest malicious piece of information. The Casey Anthony trial is the most watched trial since the OJ trial. People getting up in the morning, grabbing their coffee and muffin and turning on the news. Hopefully you're not having mutton in the morning. Muffin. Turning on the news to see what's up. I don't think it should be televised at all. It's none of my business. It's sad. It's horrific. It's tragic. It's one big terrible mess. Why are we so interested? Why do we have to hear? It's gossip. Can we as servants of the house make a pact right here in the bridge not to be a party to negative talk, whatever it might be? Just to say no to it, I won't listen to it, because again, if we refuse to listen to gossip, it'll die on the gossiper's lips. Verse 5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. This one is a serious one. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. My attitude toward the poor, get this, my attitude toward the poor is a clear indicator of where my faith is as a servant. How I feel about, how I respond to or react to people in impoverished situations reveals what's going on in my faith. Because the servant of God knows that God made all people. We've seen this talked about in Proverbs before. Proverbs 13.23 Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it's swept away by injustice. Proverbs 14.20 The poor is hated, even by his neighbor. Those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 14.31 He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. In a repeat of this. But he who is gracious to the needy honors God. And when we get to the book of Isaiah, you will be amazed at how often the Lord judges Israel because of the way they handle or mishandle the poor among them. And Jesus said in Matthew 14, or Mark 14.7 You always have the poor with you and whenever you wish you can do good to them. <laughs> I like that. That verse in the Gospel of Mark. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. James said in James 2.5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? We, we are of the spiritually poor made rich. And if God did that for us, can we do any less for people who are physically impoverished. Verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. J. Vernon McGee calls this the granddad verse. And he also said, and I love this, McGee said, if I had known how wonderful grandchildren can be, I would have had them before I had my own children. I've also heard that the reason why grandparents and grandkids get along so well is they have a common enemy. 
the sound a little bit. Thanks, Annalise. I, I love this verse. And obviously it is encouraging, and obviously there's something special and unique, and those of you who are grandparents know, you know, you get all the joy without having to worry about any of the discipline, you know. Have a great time with them all evening long, sugar them up and send them home. But there's more here. Grandparents never, never, never underestimate the impact you have on your grandkids. Don't think that just because you're not the ones raising them, you don't have a dramatic impact on their faith. When I think about outside of my parents, the two people who had the greatest impact on my faith in my life, they were my two grandmothers. And I remember to this day things, conversations that we shared together that directed me. And the Lord spoke through my grandmothers in a marvelous way. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. It started back there. A generation or two before you came along, Timothy, Lois was faithful, who passed it on to her daughter Eunice, who passed it on to you. Grandparents have a great impact on their grandkids. Verse 7, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. In other words, you can use all kinds of classy lingo, big words, you can use a teleprompter. <laughs> I, did I say that out loud? <laughs> but if you act like a fool, if you do foolish things, it doesn't matter how nice your words are. It doesn't matter how well spoken you are. The reality is, and you all know this, integrity, honesty, consistency with the truth, these things speak louder than words. Verse 8. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. I had to do a double take on this. What? Wait a minute now. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. So, so bribing's good? No. This is an acknowledgement of a truth. And the Bible does that. Acknowledges things good and bad. Acknowledges what is done, whether it's good or bad. In this case, it's a sad truth. It's kind of the way it is. It won't always be that way, by the way. Micah chapter 7, verse 3 says, Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desires of his soul, and they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. And then their confusion will occur. So God acknowledges all this stuff that's going on, all this seedy stuff that's going on in the back rooms of the high towers of the politicians. He says, yeah, I know what's going on. And the day is coming when it will be dealt with and dealt with firmly. Verse 9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. We talked about this a few Sundays back in a teaching called Love Covers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 tells us, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has cleansed me of my sin, 
What else can I do but cover others? Not expose, not shame, not embarrass, but cover. And as we talked about several Sundays back, when people walk in the door of the bridge, my prayer is they walk in knowing, here's a place where I'm not going to be shamed, but I'm going to be accepted, and I'm going to be loved, and I'm going to be given opportunity to heal. Verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. (laughs) This proverb app answers a common question. Question that especially in ministry we hear often, and that is why do those living sinful lives seem to get ahead while followers of Jesus often end up in the furnace? The difference is between discipline and punishment. Discipline and punishment. The reason why you see good people, followers of Jesus now, having a hard time is discipline. The Lord is training. He cares enough to take us through the struggles, to refine us, to purify our faith. But if someone could care less about the Lord, discipline is not going to do any good. That's why I said before, God must really love you if you are in a place of discipline, of struggle, of hardship right now. Because He knows that the refinement process that He is taking you through will have a good result. Otherwise, why bother? David said in Psalm 118, verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. So I got my discipline. But I'm still alive. I'm still here. I'm still kicking. Proverbs 3, verse 11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. Don't grumble about it. Don't be angry when life gets hard and God takes you into the furnace. He's doing a good thing because He cares so much for you. And I'm convinced, by the way, that this is one of the reasons behind the Bible-like pattern of many churches today. Most people don't want discipline. We don't want the reproof. We don't want the tough stuff. We just want the good stuff. You know, the sweet little candy nuggets out there. That's what we want. So give me the lighthearted stories. Give me the stuff that doesn't go deep. Give me the easy. But don't give me discipline. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's why the Scripture was given. For reproof, training, discipline. But... If we won't listen to it, if we're not corrected by it, we will not understand why things are happening the way they're happening. Which is why in the Christian community today, so many Christians do not understand hardship, do not understand struggle, fall away when it gets difficult. Why? Because they're not in the Word. And not being in the Word, they haven't learned that reproof is a good thing. That discipline is a positive thing. And so rather than thank the Lord, they grumble against the Lord because they haven't learned the reproof that God would bring. What does the Bible tell us? 1 Corinthians 11.32 When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Discipline now or punishment later. Those are the options. Hebrews 12, verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, 
And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Discipline now for purification later. But punishment is not for now. Punishment is for later. Because punishment is not about correction, it's about consequence. Discipline is for correction. Punishment is consequence for rebellion. Hebrews chapter 10.29 tells us how severe a punishment do you think He will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Remember what we said last week? There's one way to go to hell. Bypass the cross, scorn the crucifixion, trample the Son, reject grace. you got to go through all that to get to hell. That takes a conscious effort. But the Lord disciplines now those whom He loves. He will punish them those who spurn or reject His love. I think I'd rather be disciplined now. I think if given the choice, I'd rather go through it now, be trained for righteousness now, rather than punish later. John writes in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so again, if you are in the crucible right now, if you are in the refining pot, if you're in the place of struggle, God must really love you. I know it's hard to hear. But you are blessed when you struggle. Because God is saying, He's worth it to me. She's worth it to me. And He is working out a great purification in your life. Now the next several verses deal with punishment rather than discipline. Verse 11, A rebellious man seeks only evil, so a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. (laughs) Better to come face to face with an angry mama bear than deal with an idiot. He who returns evil for good... Evil will not depart from his house. Now this answers another age-old question. If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Listen again. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Day one of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God saw that the light was good. And every day after that, for each of the six days of creation, God saw that it was good. And finally, on day six, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Good, 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 good. Very good. What did man do with God's good creation? He returned evil for it. And in so doing, evil has not departed from this house. The proverb is absolutely true. Man rebelled against the Creator. The title deed was handed over to the enemy, to Satan. Jesus called Him the ruler of this world. Paul called Him the God of this world. And He currently holds title 
Because when God gave good, man returned evil for the good. And Satan's evil, as you know, has spread out like a tsunami. And it has covered the earth. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Boy, that is so true. True of how strife in the beginning, started by the enemy, spread out, could not be stopped. I remember as as a kid going down to the beach as a young kid and trying to stop the waves. It was kind of a game we played. You know, see if you can stop the wave. Okay, ready, here we go. We'd all line up with our hands up. Ready, here it comes. And just get wiped out, you know. And we'd laugh. We'd get up and try it again. And the picture here is, is stunning because this is what happens with strife. Once the waters of strife start to flow, it's very hard to stop. I, I, I've sat in meetings where, where people were at odds. And all it takes is one little statement of negativity and the next one responds. And, and, and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa! You know? It just spreads out like water. We've seen the recent flooding of the Mississippi and how hard they had to work just to try and contain somehow and it was next to impossible. There's only one way that I know of to stop the spreading of strife. There's only one way to stop the flow of water that otherwise is impossible. How do you do it? You don't stand against the waves. You let them crash over you. You let it come. You take the downside in the argument. You accept the negativity from the other without returning it. Even if the waves of strife knock you down unfairly and unjustly, Jesus said, you've heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn the other to him also. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. If you want to stop strife, be it in a marriage, be it in a personal relationship, in a family, do not stand against the wave. How dare you strike me? Oh yeah? Well you're... Don't stand against the wave. Mm. Let it crash. Verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Wow, we better be careful with this one. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous. Do we see this going on? Absolutely. It's stunning to me. Not just in society, but in in the church. This upside-down mentality. Tolerance for all manner of wickedness. But absolute intolerance, even condemnation, for those who are just trying to be righteous. Mm -hmm. Just trying to live by the truth of the Word of God. Oh, if you do that, you get slammed. But on the other hand, whatever goes, it's an abomination to the Lord. He loathes it. The upside is don't think God's unaware of what's going on. It offends Him as well. Verse 16. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? It's one of those you've got to read a couple times. 
what's he saying here? What exactly does this mean? I like Charles Bridges' translation of it. He translates, Of what use is money in the hand of a fool, seeing as he has no desire to buy wisdom? It doesn't make sense. It's like the college student who goes off to the expensive university and then parties 24-7 and fails out. Okay, that, That's a fool. You, you paid for, for nothing. Or, or it's like the people in the Galilee Triangle. What's the Galilee Triangle? Three towns. Three towns there in the Galilee that were the location of Jesus' ministry. The vast majority of his miracles of his teaching took place in the Galilee Triangle, the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And the people, they got the lion's share of Jesus when he walked on earth. I mean, wow. If I had the choice, if he was coming right now, I'd say, oh, make it Anacortes, Oak Harbor, and Coopville. Come and, and, and I wonder, would we do the same? What did they do? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum. Many of you have visited Capernaum. Beautiful little quaint seaside town there. Well, that quaint little town rejected Jesus. You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day the very embodiment of wisdom walked among them, was present there, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, back and forth, and they wasted the education. The riches of wisdom in the hands of fools. It's worthless. That's what the verse is explaining there. By the way, that's the real tragedy in church. When people go to church, spend time, energy, sometimes even money, involved in church, but they have no desire to respond to what they hear. No implementation of hearers of the word only, not doers of the word. So I, I ask you tonight, what is God's wisdom worth to you? What's it worth? Maybe a better question to ask is, what are you worth to Him? Think about that. Respond to it by responding to His Word. Verse 17, I like this verse. A friend loves at all times. I have at all times underlined and circled in my Bible. A friend loves at all times. The key to knowing if someone is truly your friend means that they will always love you and it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. In good times, in bad times, at your best, at your worst, after you're cleaned and pressed, or when you first get up in the morning, breath that would kill a dog, the friend will still be your friend. If you're saintly or sinful, you know a friend is one who will still love you. Who will still be there for you. It's how we know who our friends are. It's how you know that Jesus is the best of all possible friends. He said, John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all the things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, here's the thing about Jesus as a friend. He can't love you any more or less than He does right now. You can't do anything... Listen, and this is, this is radical grace stuff. You can't do anything to make Him love you less. You also can't do anything to make Him love you more. Such is the expanse of grace. It's huge. And by the way, it's not because you or I... It's not because we are so lovable. It's because He is love. The most sinful, heinous person in the world, Jesus loves. So is that universal salvation? No, I didn't say Jesus saves. But He loves because He is love. And applied to our lives, that is astounding because in my worst moments, in my darkest sin, Jesus still looks at me and says, Oh, son, I love you. He's still waiting, arms wide open, for me to turn around. The verse goes on, not only a friend loves at all time, but a brother is born for adversity. Now that doesn't mean a brother brings adversity. (laughs) My brother and I have been through a lot together. Some of you who know my story and know me well know some of what we've gone through in the last several years, a while ago. But you know what? Even at times, when Ron and I were at odds, he was always, always there for me when I was in trouble. The first time my heart started doing weird things, three and a half years ago, I was in the hospital. Within two hours of my arriving at the hospital, Ron was there. Every time something has gone wrong in my life, the phone rings, Ron is there. Because a brother is born for adversity. It's amazing. Families can be, you know, dysfunctional and fighting and out of control and everything, and a tragedy happens. Isn't it incredible how families go, stick together, work together, and then when things get worked out, then they go back, you know, the whole thing. A brother is born for adversity. Listen, in the household of God, you could put it this way. Brothers and sisters are born again for adversity. We are born again to be there for each other. To bear one another's burdens, as Paul wrote in Galatians 6.2, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers are born again for adversity. Verse 18. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of of his neighbor. We talked about this in an earlier proverb. One way or another, money and loans mar relationships. So be careful with that. I, some of you, I, I happen to know, have felt called to, to help out and, and to loan money and, and, and to do that. Just be careful. You may have a heart as someone who would loan or, or sign a pledge or be a guarantor on a loan for someone. You may have a heart where that would never bother you and you, you'd be great with it, but they may not. They might after a while start feeling a little embarrassed or ashamed if they missed a payment back to you or were unable to follow through with their side of it. It's it's tricky business. And Solomon says, be careful, be careful with that. It's not the best way to go. Verse 19. He who loves transgression loves strife. And he who raises his door seeks destruction. We're talking here 
literally about exalting a gate. The, the phrase in the Hebrew is exalting a gate. And it's literally an idi- idiom for idiots. Okay? Just think of it that way. Exalting the gate is an idiom for idiots. It, what it means is they would build in a house, a man might build a high frame for a gate or a high door, and that was a way in the Middle East of expressing greatness. He's got a high door. He must be important. Solomon's saying it's just kind of stupid because all it is is arrogance and pride. So your door frame's bigger. Big deal. But it's this this show of of arrogance. Now, this is the proverb that that I indicated before. Could be two proverbs, really. Because at first, you're not sure how they fit together. That on the one, he who loves transgression loves strife. Okay, I get that. There's a proverb. And he who raises his door or builds a high gate seeks destruction. The arrogant, you know, seeks destruction. How are these two connected? Isn't it interesting how often strife and arrogance go hand in hand? How someone who causes strife in a relationship also tends to be an arrogant, boastful person. Why would they cause strife? Because it keeps them on top. They raise the gate. They exalt themselves by pushing others down. If I can cause strife in a relationship and then I can swing in and kind of be the rescuer, I can be the one who, you know, rides on top with my high gate. Strife and arrogance. Not so for servants of the household of God. Paul said to Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not strive. The Lord's bondservant must not strive, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's always our goal. I've said before, it's not winning arguments, it's winning souls. It's not raising the gate to show how righteous we are. It's walking with people through their hard times. It's loving people through their difficulties. Verse 20, He who has a crooked mind finds no good. And he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. And he who sires a fool does so to his sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. So, teenagers, if you're wondering why your dad has been grumpy lately, I would advise you to read verse 21. Think about that one. Verse 22. A joyful heart. I like this verse. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. We we talked a bit about laughter. In fact, a few weeks ago, about Sarah laughing. Remember that? Sarah and Isaac, when Isaac was born, she named him Laughter, and I said it was a release of serotonin. You know? Because <laughs> that's what laughter does, is, you know, it releases. Well, listen, listen to some other things. You ought to do this. Google laughter and medicine. And it's incredible the research that's been done. 20 years ago, I did research on this for a master's thesis about humor in therapy. And how to work humor and, and the value of human humor and therapy, and it took me forever because there was very little sub- substantive research. A ton has been done since then. Listen to this: eight things that laughter has been proven to do physiologically. Laughter, it lowers blood pressure, it increases vascular blood flow and oxygenation of the blood. Laughter does. 
This cracks me up. It works out the diaphragm and abdominal, respiratory, facial, leg, and back muscles. It, man, I don't even have to go to the gym. I just got to sit around and laugh. <laughs> Wish I had known. <laughs> it reduces certain stress, certain stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline. It increases the response of tumor and disease-killing cells such as gamma interferon and T-cells. Laughter defends against respiratory infections, even reducing the frequency of colds by immunoglobulin in the saliva. Who would have guessed? (laughs) Laughter increases memory and learning. And number eight, it improves alertness and creativity. And researchers have shown that a hearty laugh just a hundred times a day has the same cardio results as a ten-minute workout. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. The bodily chemicals that are released when you laugh, when broken down by cost, those chemicals are worth more than ten thousand dollars at your local health food store. Save money and start telling jokes. That's what he's saying here. Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, "He who laughs lasts." I like that. He who laughs, lasts. Speaking of laughter and medicine, a nine-year-old girl was sitting in church with her mother. And she was not feeling well. She'd eaten something, but she she started to feel nauseated. She said, Mommy, can we go now? And her mom said, No, no, shh, be quiet. So she sat there a little while. She said, Mommy, I think I'm going to throw up. And her mom said, Well, go outside, out the church door. Go around to the back side of the church. There's some bushes back there. You can throw up there. Compassionate mom. So the little girl gets up and, and leaves. She comes back just a couple minutes later, and, and her mom says, Are you okay? Yeah, I'm better. Did you throw up? Yeah. How did you have time to get all the way out the church around to the back where the bushes were to throw up? I didn't have to, Mom. When I got to the front door, they had a box there that said, For the sick. <laughs> There should be laughter in the household of God. Amen? Amen. We should be a people who enjoy laughing together. Verse 23. A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. Note that it's not that he gives a bribe, it's that he receives a bribe. So kind of like gossip. It's the same thing. Whether you're giving it or receiving it, same thing. You're still sinning. Whether you're gossiping or listening to it, same thing. You're still perverting the truth. Verse 24, Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. I wonder what that says about the environmental movement. <laughs> Jay Leno said, according to a new UN report, the global warming outlook is much worse than originally predicted, which is pretty bad, seeing as they originally predicted it would destroy the earth. <laughs> <laughs> I am not anti-taking care of the earth. I am not anti-stewardship. Environmentalism, in my considered, measured opinion, is nuts. Mm -hmm. 
everything is about going green. Go green, go green, go green. Hey, listen, the fool, according to this word, the fool glues his eyes on the ends of the earth. The fool is concerned about the earth. Why? Because it's all he's got. Because he has nothing beyond this. And so everything is about here and now and about this planet. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.37, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Note the other part of that verse. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding. Or literally, wisdom is before the one who has understanding. So what he's saying is if if you are a person of understanding, your eyes are fixed on wisdom. If you're a fool, your eyes are fixed on the earth. The fool fixes his eyes on the planet. The understanding fixes his eyes on Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We are heavenly minded people. You know the old saying... You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. It's the opposite. It's the other way around. To be any earthly good, you've got to be heavenly minded. Verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. It is also not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. He who restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. I should just stop right there. I have one more thing to say. (laughs) These are the days when the servant in the household of God needs a discerning tongue and a cool spirit. These are the days where we need to measure what we say, when we say it, and how we say it. We need to measure it with wisdom. Because these are difficult days in which we live. So we need to learn with wisdom how to speak wisely and when to speak wisely. Like, like, and I love this example, like Angela Hildenbrandt. Angela Hildenbrandt. Let me read verse 26 to you again and share a little news clip and we'll be done. It is not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Perhaps you heard the story. Angela Hildenbrandt used her 15 minutes of fame wisely. She focused on prayer. While the nation watched, the valedictorian said a prayer at Saturday's graduation ceremony at Medina Valley High School near San Antonio. Just a few days earlier, a federal district judge had issued a broad ruling that effectively prohibited Angela from praying or mentioning God at all at the school-sponsored event. The school district, as well as the Attorney General Greg Abbott and the Liberty Institute, filed emergency appeals with the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Governor Rick Perry and U.S. Senator John Cornyn publicly decried the ruling. At the 11th hour, Friday afternoon, the 5th Circuit intervened and nullified the district court order, allowing Angela's prayer to go forward. 
Angela said she felt blessed, quote, to be part of this and to see God's hand through everything. It has been interesting to learn about the law process and to experience the media relations, but most of all, most of all, 18-year-old Angela said, most of all, a great testament to the faithfulness of God. Here is Angela's prayer. Lord, I thank You so much for the blessing of this day. And I just thank You for the amazing group of people that You surrounded me with. God, I thank You for the support of our whole entire community through this case hearing. And also for Aaron, Lou, and all the people at the Liberty Institute and my parents who have helped me get through the last couple of days. Lord, I just thank You so much for Your presence in our lives through these 18 years. And I just praise You for Your incredible faithfulness through all adversity and all joy. God, I thank You for the men and women who have given their lives helping to give us and protect the freedoms that we have today. I ask that You please keep Your hand of guidance on all of them, past, present, and future military. God, I thank You just so much for the freedom to be here today. And most of all, I thank You for loving us first. God, I ask that You please keep each of us safe and well as we go our separate ways, and I can't wait to see where You'll be leading each of us. I ask that You'll ask us all to remember where we come from and to know where we stand. And here's how she concluded this prayer. God, I thank You for the gift of Your Son and for the forgiveness that surpasses all understanding. And most of all, I thank You for Your great love for us and for our great nation where we are free. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow. Amazing. Good for you, Angela. She's a wise servant in the household of God. It's why we continue in the Word. It's why we're going through the Proverbs. James said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And so we're asking. And we're seeking as we go through each one of these Proverbs. I'll close with this verse, Hebrews 3, verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. God, we come before You again as servants in Your household. Servants who You have called children. Bondservants of our Lord Jesus Christ whom You have adopted into Your family. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for making us worthy to be called Your own by the blood of Your Son. And make us wise. Lord, there are any number of decisions we have to make this week. There are any number of challenges that we face individually in this barn that we have to go home to. Make us wise. Help us to speak with wisdom. Help us to have the simple faith of of Angela Hildenbrand and just to trust and to go forward and not be afraid to stand as your children, sons and daughters who have an inheritance and who have an authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.